Welcome to Reinventing Solidarity, a podcast of the journal New Labor Forum and the School of Labor and Urban Studies at the City University of New York. My name is Paula Finn, podcast host and editor of New Labor Forum. Reinventing Solidarity features scholars, activists, and artists on the front lines of movements for social and economic justice. We ask the essential and often provocative questions about race, class, gender, and the role of organized labor and social justice organizations in the work of creating a radically different world, a world of solidarity, equality, and sustainability. 20 years ago, an article in New Labor Forum titled The Arithmetic of Decline, a Modest Proposal for Renewal, led to a series of exchanges between the article's authors, Peter Olney and Glenn Perusik, and the legendary historian and labor strategist, Jack Womack. These discussions culminated in the recent book, Labor, Power, and Strategy. In this episode of Reinventing Solidarity, School of Labor and Urban Studies professor Stephanie Luce sits down with co-editor of the book, Peter Olney, and two contributors, Jane McAlevey and Bill Fletcher. They tackle the big labor organizing questions of the day. What is the relative strategic importance of organizing workers at the commanding heights of the 21st century economy, like the docks, for example, versus organizing workers whose solidarity is strong, yet whose structural power within the economy is weaker, like those at Starbucks? And in a society teetering on the precipice of authoritarianism, what should be the scope and mission of labor organizing today? In the words of Jane McAlevey, any day when labor leaders and activists engage in power analysis and strategic debate is a good day. We at the Reinventing Solidarity podcast are pleased to help broaden the audience for such vital discussion. I wanted to start out by just getting some background from you, Peter, about how you came to write this book, how you came to talk to John and, you know, what is the origin story behind labor power and strategy? Thanks, Stephanie, and thanks to Bill and Jane for joining this wonderful discussion and making their contributions to this book, Labor Strategy and Power. As the organizing director at the International Longshore and Warehouse Union, I had on many occasions, the ability to witness the exercise of working class power at a keynote in the international supply chain, the West Coast ports. And the origins of this book are actually at CUNY, because I wrote an article in New Labor Forum in 2003 called The Arithmetic of Decline, A Modest Proposal for Renewal. And one of the points I made in that was that I felt like the labor movement has to continue to focus on manufacturing and logistics as key sectors of the economy. And soon after uh, I wrote the piece in 2002, I received an email from Professor John Womack at Harvard, who I knew as the English-speaking world's most notable historian of the Mexican Revolution. 
he sent me a paper that he had presented at a conference in Helsinki, Finland in 2006 titled Working Power Over Production, Labor History, Industrial Work, Economics, Sociology, and Strategic Position. So because of this paper and this interaction, I became friends with John and I decided that his thoughts needed to be captured and written down in English. So I interviewed him in 2018 and then my co-editor, Glenn Parashek, and I edited the interviews and decided that we will get 10 of labor's best organizers and labor educators to respond to John. So that's the origins of the book, 152 pages of an interview with John, a true pocketbook, 10 responders, and John's responses to his responders. Excellent. Some have suggested that I should have drafted 12 respondents to make it biblical. <laughs> but uh, these uh, respondents are certainly not spreading the Womackian gospel. Most of them say, yes, John, you are right, but, and we have two of those folks with us today. So, John talked about the need to think about strategy within the labor movement. And can you share a few more insights that you found particularly useful from the interviews? Well, what I found useful was one thinking about writ large strategic sectors of the economy. And then within those sectors, what are these choke points or places where workers hold incredible power? And not necessarily because of skill, but because of position in the process. Another point John makes that those choke points are constantly evolving. You know, the production systems are constantly evolving. You know, you have the introduction of robots to replace human labor, potentially eliminating the power of workers. And yet you have the robot repair mechanics becoming strategically important workers. So it's that concept of a constant dynamic and the need for analysis that really struck me about these interviews with John Womack. Okay, great, thank you. And that's a perfect transition to Jane's piece. So Jane, you wrote an excellent chapter called How to Read Womack, and you, you really focused in on two key points that you think deserve attention. So can you share with us what those points are and your thinking about those points? Yes, my pleasure to do so. And let me just say that it was, you know, I want to acknowledge the incredible work that Peter and Glenn did trying to put this together. And I accepted the mission of diving into it because as I say in the beginning of the chapter I wrote, I think anytime in the trade union movement, let alone the broader labor movement, that we can engage around questions of strategy and power in forthright and honest ways, like that's a step in the right direction. I think there is too little um, focus on these topics. And so I was thrilled to read the original interviews, and I admit I had not been aware of them until Peter first rang me up and mentioned them and sent them to me. Yeah, so I just, I think, I think it's the right topic. I think the question, I, I think anytime we're debating questions of power and strategy, it's just a good day um, in our movement, and it's, it's insufficiently done. So, you know, I think largely my intervention in this was around questions of what constitutes disruption, what can constitute disruption, What's the role of, you know, there's a lot of focus on the private sector, and I appreciate that. Um, but I think given the unionization today and where a lot of the unionized sector rests, it's both a problem, but it's also an opportunity in the so-called public sector. 
And I think both in the article and when I speak, I'm, I'm known to say so-called private sector and so-called public sector. I don't even really believe that there's a clear division at, between them anymore. So I think that to me, the fundamental question is getting to John's is where can we create the kind of crisis? That's the word I was trained to use from 1199, but where can we create the kind of crisis or the kind of disruption that forces corporations and capital, and we hope the broader political elite to actually respond um, and start to negotiate with us. And I think there's a broader, for me, my life experience, given that I've spent most of my life organizing in at least the publicly financed parts of the private sector, like healthcare primarily, and then education, which is, you know, more purely seen as public sector. I think that we have seen in recent strikes that there's plenty of capacity to create massive disruption that forces the political elite to the table to negotiate with us. And so for me, it's again, it's an appreciation of the larger points that Womack is raising. And then I wanna dig as I tried to and push um, harder on who has the capacity to create that disruption and towards what end, right? If we are only creating disruption in let's say an education strike like in West Virginia, and we are only um, setting out with very narrow demands, well, that's not very helpful. But if the demands that we're creating are a larger set of societal demands, um, and we see, for example, the so-called public sector workers as the frontline defense against the final destruction of you know, public good and public services, I think that's a hell of an important and strategic sector to engage. And I, it feels like this is a long running debate in our progressive movement, public sector, private sector. And I think I've been on the side of it the whole time that says, you know, I, it's a blurrier line than we think between those two sectors. And that blur continues with who has the capacity to create the kind of crisis and disruption that forces the kind of rearranging of a social contract that we need, obviously not just in the US, but everywhere. Great, thanks, Jane. And now I'd like to turn to Bill, who also picks up similar themes in your chapter. And you're really exploring the question of, you know, who are we talking about organizing here? And the strategy come from above the generals that are making the most strategic technical decision, or does it come from where people are in motion? Um, so can you say more about your chapter, Bill? Yeah, uh, thank you, Stephanie. And my thanks to Peter as well. So I'm in a great deal of agreement with what Jane raised. I entitled this chapter, Should Spartacus Have Organized the Roman Citizenry? In part to be provocative, which I rarely am. And, uh, and so I, 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 just, I wanted to get at sort of this question of people in motion and also the politics, using that with a small p, of those who are in motion. So in my chapter, in a lot of unity with what Dr. Womack lays out, to a great extent, I think about it as the plug and socket issue, that with every machine, there's a plug and socket. And so you got to figure out where they are. And that's the, like, in a technical level, that's a strategic point. Um, but what I grapple with is the question of who's in motion as an old friend of mine used to say, is the wood wet or dry? 
And I also, you know, focus on uh, what uh, Womack is raising in terms of what ripples can be sent and where. But then, uh, as Jane was saying, sort of the politics, what's the politics involved? What, what's the objective of these movements? So in my piece, I make reference to a strike that took place in South Africa among white mine workers, where the slogan was, workers of the world unite and fight for a white South Africa. So they had obviously picked a vulnerable point in the South African economy. This is back in the early 20s, uh, 1920s. But obviously the politics were, were problematic. So those are the things that I was trying to grapple with. And it's also very influenced by reading Nikos Poulantzas's Fascism and Dictatorship, where he makes this really interesting observation that in the lead up to the, the victory of fascism in uh, Italy and Germany, that the trade union movement became quite militant, but its demands were almost entirely economic. It was not an anti-fascist labor movement. And that the, the scope of the movement had really narrowed. And I deeply worry about that repeating itself in the United States when I look at some of the challenges that are going on within today's trade union movement, and frankly, some of the cowardice of many leaders who don't want to take on the issue of the far right. So I feel like I was both uniting with and also diverging from what uh, Dr. Womack was raising. Thanks, Bill. Yeah, I think what you're raising in part is this question of just because you're in a strategic choke point doesn't mean you are wanting to organize or able to be organized or organized around useful demands. And so uh, that raises you know, the question of also, how do we deal with this age old problem that we've always seen within the trade union movement of what you know people have called trade union consciousness, a very much narrow focus on organizing for very specific demands for your own self and your own coworkers and not the broader working class. So Peter, can I turn back to you and get your thoughts on the, some of the questions that Jane and Bill just raised? Certainly. Well, I'm proud to say that uh, having known these comrades for many years, I could anticipate their responses to Womack. In fact, that was true for all 10 respondents. I think they both make excellent points, and you also make an excellent point about this issue of sectional exclusivity, which we try to address in the in the uh, interview with Womack. Um, I think it's certainly true that Jane's point about where we've seen motion and action uh, has been in sectors that are not traditionally seen as the commanding heights of the economy, healthcare and education. Her point is absolutely correct that those have been places that we've seen motion and action that needs, needs to be supported, popularized and spread. And this is the contradiction that comes up a lot in the interview with Walbach and then the respondents is this question of uh, where workers are in motion versus where workers have this kind of strategic technical power. And one of the things that I find interesting in this present moment is you have a situation where the graduate students organized by the United Auto Workers, ironically, but importantly, have just waged a wonderful strike here in California where they won, probably radicalized a whole generation of uh, intellectuals and activists. 
And those workers have propelled the change in leadership in the United Auto Workers, which ironically, I think, will lead to more organizing in the automobile sector. So I think this issue of where workers are in motion versus strategic sectors of the economy is one of the fundamental tensions in the whole book. And you just heard it articulated by my dear friends, Jane and Bill. Yeah, thank you. And I think another tension that kind of comes up throughout the book is this notion of how to define power and think about power. And in the interviews, um, you discuss with uh, Professor Womack that these terms structural power and associational power, which he's drawing in part from Eric Olin Wright, a sociologist from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, who was my advisor, actually. So I'm very um, invested in thinking about those terms. Now, I've use those terms in my own teaching with labor organizers and activists, and they usually don't land well because they don't seem to make intuitive sense to people. Structural power being the power that you get from where you're located in the economy or where you're located in the workplace or the, the labor market, if you have scarce skills, if it's hard to replace you, if you're located in a point in a bottleneck in the production line. So structural power doesn't always seem to land with organizers. I think some of them prefer the power to disrupt, disruptive power, for example. And then the other term, associational power, which John Womack also agreed is not a very helpful term and he called comradeship. In my classes, we call it solidarity power, but this is the power that comes from working with having tight solidarity with your coworkers or other elements of society, the broad public, for example. So I think one of the tensions in the book is, you know, is it even useful? Do those distinctions make sense between those two forms of power? Um, how do they operate together? Should we privilege one above the other? Um, and so I wanted to ask you, Jane, I know you think a lot about power and some of the terms you use are similar and some are different. You talk about creating crisis. Can you say some more about your thinking about that dynamic um, of sources of power and how we think about them in the labor movement? Yes, thank you so much. And I think you're right, Stephanie, that the terms don't land very well for people as they were described, even though I think they were done really well. So let me link back to one thing that Bill said as a way to segue into this. I'm going to reframe it, but jumping off of Bill. What would it take to build an anti-fascist trade union movement right now, just building on the deficiencies from the examples he cites in history? It seems like a fairly urgent question, frankly, right in this very moment, um, as we are, you know, clearing bookshelves, you know, of normalized topics and we have Supreme Court completely, you know, off the leash and it's going to continue to do things that are, you know, pushing us um, to the brink of a a time in the U.S. that I haven't experienced. I mean, maybe people who are older than me experienced the 50s and 60s as threateningly as today, but not, not in my life. Um, it's about the question of small-D democracy um, and kind of freedom, I think, the way progressives would define that or leftists um, is very much at stake right now. And of course, there's whole populations for whom it has been the whole time, right? If you're a young Black kid running into a cop, um, the questions have never gone away. So when I think about building an anti-fascist trade union movement, that's where, again, the question of the role of things like education and healthcare and um, workers come in. Because I think that by definition, they can force larger questions on the trade union movement um, about, you know, social justice, because they're what I have long called mission-driven workers um, who are largely not um, in a fight for just economics. In fact, they're in a fight to make the services that they provide 
better and those services are fundamental. Do you have a right to healthcare or are you dying? Um, is your kid getting a great education or not? And I also want to point out before getting back to some examples of what this power question looks like, it, you know, Peter referred to them as not known as the commanding heights of the economy. Again, I agree, except what I point out in the chapter, I think, is that in West Virginia, and I certainly point this out in a couple of books, you know, in a place like West Virginia, in a lot of the United States right now, they're the two largest employment sectors. So on the one hand, they're not, you know, they're not the docks of LA in terms of structural power, but if they're the largest employer for giant swaths of the population and geographic sectors where we need to do political work and unelect and elect, you know, different kinds of people, it's, it seems like even the definition of what's, what's a commanding height of the economy, I'm just going to throw out there uh, in a state like West Virginia, right, where literally they were the largest employment sector um, in almost every single part of the state were the education workers to some degree. So, but on the question of associational versus the way I think I use the term, Stephanie, when I'm working um, in the workplace with workers is just stripping it down to hard to replace, easy to replace. To me, that always feels like the easiest way to get people to understand what we mean. Like, you know, the workers at JFK 8 on Staten Island, I would argue in an interesting way, maybe technically easy to replace, but they're geographically located in a very interesting position um, for a large corporation. And within the facility, there's a whole bunch of workers who, in fact, are not as easy to replace. So even just one big facility, we have to make assessments about. For me, the question of associational power has always sat out there like it's just solidarity just happens. And I want to say, when we're doing organizing inside of a workplace, part of what I think matters is to focus on structure and what we call structure-based organizing, because it allows workers to understand whether or not they're building to kind of a supermajority power in the lead up to something like a strike. Now, when a lot of organizations, unions in this case, sort of think about associational power or think about building power with something they call the community, as I think I said back in No Shortcuts and I hint at in the chapter in my response to Womack, it's sort of like where good, good organizers check their brains at the door, because in fact, we need to have the same kind of methods to turn the potential of associational power, meaning power outside of the workplace, power from parents, power from students, if it's an education strike, power from broader consumers and patients and families, if it's a long-term healthcare strike, that associational power doesn't mean a lot unless it's organized. And so do we have a concurrent theory and set of methods that turns the potential associational power into actually organized power. And I am at the moment back engaging with my home union, 1199 New England, and doing a mass scale project to do just that all over again, to essentially replicate what we were doing in the Stanford Organizing Project 25 years ago. And it's a fascinating thing to see how much power that one very good union uh, leaves on the table, as to almost every single union. Like we just leave power on the table. And what I've been saying, working with these thousands of workers up there is, look, it isn't even just like when you don't go organize in the broader community around a coming struggle. I'm about to write an article about this. Isn't just that we leave power on the table as a trade union movement at a time when we're desperate for it. It's that someone else is going to come in and take that effing power from you. So it isn't even neutral. It isn't even like if we don't go organize the faith community through the rank and file members, if we don't go organize all the connections the members have through the members themselves in a bottom-up way. It isn't just that we're leaving power there. Some other SOBs are going to take it. 
And a good example of that is when you go back to that Chattanooga UAW election attempt way back where there was an election procedure agreement, the United Auto, meaning there was some kind of soft neutrality agreement, the UAW sent in a team of organizers that were, let's just say not the A team by people's admission, because they had what they thought was a neutrality agreement where the employer was not allowed to sort of fight back in vicious ways, Volkswagen in this case inside of the facility. And what they completely missed was that they were out organized in the churches and by the wives. So literally the right wing in Tennessee, and we know this, went straight to wives of auto workers and the churches to organize their husbands to vote no, even with a neutrality agreement. So that's that's like a really concrete example of when we don't go out and organize that power, someone else is going to do it in a hard campaign. And maybe one last thing I'll say, and I don't know if this is useful at this point or not, and you all can decide. But I often think about this question of structural versus associational, like most things, I think of it about it as a strategic choice of how we do our work. So back when the domestic workers were first organizing, I'm going to say 10, 12, I don't know, time is flying now, 13 years ago in New York City, I was at an early meeting about what it would look like for the domestic workers to organize. And in the room, there was a lot of discussion about, you know, going, finding sympathetic parents who would sign on voluntarily to agree to a contract um, that domestic workers in New York think of nannies primarily here, people taking care of people's kids. And to me, that was going to lead to just a sort of self-selecting, voluntary, powerless organization in a lot of ways. Whereas I counterposed in the room that the way to organize domestic workers and shift them into a very powerful position would be to go through 32BJ, the Building Workers Union, where the absolute rich people and all of their buildings already had unionized workers who would know whether or not and what literally like Every single domestic worker in every high rise in New York would be known already by a unionized workforce called 32BJ, the security guards and the door people. Um, and that they could then strike. Like if you struck the east side, the upper, you know, you could actually, you could turn the domestic workers into a force to actually strike. So that's even an example of when we think about power and how do you build it, things that seem less obvious can actually become structural and obvious if we put our heads into what's the power structure analysis? What's the best way for this set of workers to build power? People think of it as only associational. You can turn that into structural. Great. Thanks so much, Jane. There's so much there uh, to dig into. I'm going to turn back to Bill and see um, if you have thoughts to contribute on these kind of, how do we think about power? What are the sources? How to build a movement using um, these two sources or how do they relate to one another? I want to actually go further back to something that Peter was saying about the UAW. The UAW in the 1980s decided in part because of the affiliation of District 65 um, to start organizing in non-traditional sectors. I was part of District 65. I was there when that was going on. It struck me though, that from the standpoint of power for the union, that was not a good decision. It was a decision that was based more on the fact that the core of the UAW's base was evaporating, but it was fundamentally based on the failure of the UAW to conduct new organizing. There are, as Peter has said repeatedly, as long as I've known him, there's plenty of manufacturing to be organized. And this idea that was promoted in the UAW, it then resurfaces in UNITE, when UNITE merges with HERE of, in effect, there's no 
manufacturing to organize is absurd and was based to a great extent on uh, a myopia within these unions. So this is not to say that those sectors shouldn't have been organized. Actually, not at all. It's the question of who was organizing them and what kind of commitment they were making. And in all organizing, these issues of power emerge, whether you're doing public sector, whether you're doing you know, semi-private healthcare, whatever. Issue strategically in every setting is where is the plug and where is the socket? And that's what needs to be figured out. So on one level, I feel like this is very straightforward. It's something that all organizers should understand, all union leaders should understand in terms of making an assessment of the nature of one's opponent and what are their vulnerabilities. That's the key to strategy, right? But then there's the question of, to borrow from the philosopher Tanto, who is we? And that's where this issue of class struggle comes in. And what, uh, what much of the union movement has missed, many of the things that, uh, that Jane was talking about, I would argue really come down to the way in which class struggle is envisioned. And unfortunately, within the trade union movement, but also in sections of the left, there is this infatuation with the economic struggle and looking at the economic struggle, particularly the workplace struggle, as being the only legitimate realm for class struggle. Whereas the the whole notion of reaching out to, like, for example, with the uh, teachers, reaching out into the community should not be seen as sort of simply community outreach, as James said. To me, it's about a sort of class struggle approach, a social justice approach to the way that, that unions need to be built. So, I mean, that's the way I, I look at this, this power question. Yeah, thank you. And I find, too, like a lot of our students at CUNY are union members, but they may not be thinking about their wage or pension. First and foremost, they're worried about affordable housing. They might even be... Uh, working uh, as a residential door person in a building and worried they're going to be pushed out of their housing as new developments go up or people who are worried about the the schools that their kids are going to. So I think these approaches that are organizing in the workplace, but also organizing to people's multiple identities are fundamental for how people think about and relate to their unions. Peter, I wanted to turn back to you. I think one of the interesting chapters on this notion around power is from Katie Fox Hodes, who has written about dock workers. And she's making the case that, you know, even though this is an occupation that you think is the ultimate in terms of you know, what we call structural power or disruptive power, that in many cases in her work, she finds that associational power is key because you can be in a very strategic position, but if you're not well organized as a union, you can't deploy that. Or if you are not prepared to fight when privatization happens, or you're not you know, you might go on strike and face brutal repression from the state. These are cases where you need public support and you need broader organizing beyond the workplace. But you are someone who's seen it firsthand. You've seen up close what organizing on the docks looks like. I'm curious what you think about these notions of power. Yeah, I too. Uh, I love that chapter. Katie worked for the ILWU as an organizer before she became a skilled organizer academic at the University of Sheffield in England. Uh, I love her chapter that resonated with my experience because, you know, if we look at a group of dock workers in Oakland who can shut down the docks over Black Lives Matter, then we think about, say, dock workers in Singapore engaging in that kind of activity. They'd probably be shot or 
at least jailed. So this issue of socio-political context for these struggles is absolutely crucial. And she does some case studies around that in her work in different ports and different places where the union does not have that kind of social and political support. They are unable to exercise structural power. And in fact, she points out that workers who have extreme levels of, of structural power are often the target of the capitalist state. And unless you've built that kind of, you know, surrounding political environment that supports what you're doing, you're in big trouble. So I found that chapter one of the most compelling of all and, and probably one of the best critiques of uh, John Womack. Thanks so much. I realized, Jane, Jane, you also raised the point about you're, you're going back and working with 1199. I think part of your comments raised the question of the idea of strategic altogether can be done in different ways. We can think strategic in terms of these choke points or bottlenecks, but strategic can also be in terms of changing public opinion. Strategic can be in terms of long-term building alliances. So a lot of different ways to think about strategy. So I'm wondering, we, we talked a bit about the, the power part of these interviews. Now to think a bit more about the strategy point, can you say what you want, what would you want young uh, labor organizers or young activists to think about when they think about the question of strategy? Mm. Yeah, great question. The first is for them to realize that, that in order to do good strategy, you have to first do power structure analysis. And I think that's you know, an age-old problem in our whole movement, right? But I am working with a lot of young people and they're not yet ruined by bad ideas. And so part of what's nice about that is actually just saying it's not possible to do really effective strategy if you haven't first done, and this is the part of me that loved Womack, if you haven't really thought through what is the power structure analysis. And then I think it's, it's never enough to just say it right? To just say things like that. You have to have a method and a way to make that real to people. Like the associational power question. What's associational power? It sounds so amorphous. I can either say, well, in Chattanooga, Tennessee, the right wing figured out what associational power was. It was the wives of the husbands and it was their congregations, right? That's actually associational power and the right dove into it, sadly. And so to me, it's, it's a question of, you know, one thing is saying something. Another thing is, can we provide an opportunity and a set of methods by which people learn to do this. And part of the work about going back into Connecticut right now is a recognition that a couple of things have happened. One, since I was there 25, I don't know, something years ago in the late 1990s, the union has uh, one entire new sector called the home care sector that didn't even exist when I was at the union, right? So we were very much a union that relied on, we can strike, we can win. If we can strike, and we can create a crisis, we can win. And now they've got thousands of workers who don't have the capacity to strike for sake of argument. So the question is, how do you build power among workers who don't have strike capacity, but who are large in number? And what's very clear is that every home care worker has huge potential, I'm just going to say the word potential, potential um, associational power. So now how do you create a structure by which we can measure, test, and assess the relationships between very disparate workers called home care workers? We are at the moment tapping into the fact that many of them are faith-oriented. They have a faith, they have a denomination or a congregation, and in some of what we call the community mapping conversations that we're doing with them, you know, in one round of talking to a couple thousand workers with 200 rank and file workers who came out of the shop to do a blitz, we found, 
you know, close to a thousand out of 2000 workers who were deeply in just as a, an example, who were deeply members of a house of faith of some kind. And then when we began to look into the numbers and crunch them, okay, so 998 points of contact in a house of faith, the number of them who attended the same house of faith was incredible. Now, how many of them even knew that they were 1199 members? Not many. We're on that phase of the project right now. So you've got people sitting in pews who don't even realize that they're struggling against a poverty employment sector called home care. And again, not tapping into the power of, in this case, the faith community, which we know historically the United States, um, and I'm going to argue beyond, is a source of tremendous power when we choose to structure it into our campaigns. So it isn't a top-down, which is what most of, if, to the degree that labor thinks, you know, about your word, Stephanie, building alliances, which makes me shiver, actually. Nothing personal. I don't, I don't care for building alliances. I mean, it's just not the way I think of it. I think the concurrent, the only way to make the work effective is to have the same bottom-up approach into the community that we have in the workplace, meaning the workers have to do the work. And so the essence of what I wound up calling, you know, a whole worker organizing, just because we have to give things a name, is about how do you have a concurrent bottom-up theory that's worker-led to build and bring their own communities into their own struggle. And that's what I began doing in the labor movement. I've continued to do, and I'm going back to do it uh, in a very scaled-up way right now towards creating a manual for people, because I feel like the manual has not sort of existed. It's a, It's just been sitting out there. And Rob Real, the head of the union, said... Yeah, Mac Levy, we all know you how to do this. So the question is, can you teach everybody else? So we're working on that. So I think you have to start by saying you can't do good strategy if you haven't done the power structure analysis. And if faith, like, let me just say, when I got to Nevada, I'll close on this. When I went from, you know, eight years of intense work in the Northeast with a lot of workers who are black and brown immigrant where faith mattered, I then landed in, you know, the land of, the sort of anti-faith, anti-Christ, whatever, like Vegas, where there was not one single opportunity available to do faith-oriented work um, in a highly transitory place where it was going to be workplace-based power only, basically, except it turned out for the Filipino nurses, who, of course, did have a strong Catholic church system, which we eventually tapped. But if you have to understand the power available to you in any fight and then build your strategy out from there. And I think for a lot of people who are new to the work, they don't have the eyes on yet to even see what those possibilities are. I mean, even just asking people, so you've got a set of workers and you want to have some extra power. How do you do it? It's so interesting to hear like, well, let's hire an organized, let's hire someone, create an alliance. There's many of them in the labor movement and like have a staff person go start meeting with religious leaders. That just makes no sense to me. When the people who actually have the capacity to move a conservative and powerful or undecided but powerful faith leader is not going to be some person they don't know from a union. It's going to be a member of their congregation who's a member of the union. Like that's the bottom up approach to the work that can move serious power, what we call associational power, uh, into our fights. That's an organizing approach. We are not going out to talk to the reverends that most of the labor left coalitions have who don't scare the politicians. We're going out to do organic leader ID in the community. We have a method to do it. We're figuring out who are the, you know, in this case, faith community leaders who, if they call the mayor or the governor, the governor's going to take their call and take it fast. Those are not the people that you will normally find, not in a labor community top-down coalition. We're trying to find the ones who are the equivalent of the undecided informal organic leaders in the workplace, but in the community, chart them, map them, and have the members themselves 
go out and do the hard work of actually shifting the of people in the community around the facility, like the way that Peter referred to Katie's chapter, like how to go out and build that kind of support, I think requires a bottom-up strategy. That's not a lot different than the bottom-up strategy that, that wins at the end of the day in a big workplace. All right. Thank you, Jane. And I hear you on uh, how we use the, the notion of building alliances, but I'm going to turn to Bill because I think, Bill, you mentioned earlier and you've been thinking and writing about how the labor movement should be on the forefront of fighting growing fascist authoritarian movements. And there's a question about, you know, Jane has a strong argument for a bottom-up approach, but there's also a question of where top leaders need to also be taking action and maybe building what we might think of as tactical alliances with people that aren't normally our friends in a fight against an authoritarian movement. Um, but I'm curious to hear some more thoughts on this, because I know it's forefront on your mind. Well, two things, Stephanie. First, I think it's really important that people don't mystify this question of a concrete analysis. You know, in one of Mao Zedong's opening essays, he asked the question, who are our enemies and who are our friends? That's actually what people need to ask and, and answer, right? You start with who are the enemies and identifying them, what makes them the enemies and who are our friends. And within that, there are strategic and tactical friends. And one of the problems is that in the trade union movement, we don't teach people strategy and tactics. It's, it, you know, I've been arguing for years that there needs to be a labor war college where we actually are teaching, you know, like the first thing that people read would be Sun Tzu, the art of war. And the people would get to understand strategy and tactics campaigns, the whole nine yards. But you begin with a concrete analysis. And I think it's really important to say this because I don't want people to feel overwhelmed like, well, I haven't been taught this. I don't know how to do this. You can do it. And it can be done in a very facilitated way, tapping into the knowledge that people have and, and really encouraging people to do that elsewhere. So that's, that was point one, one I wanted to raise, uh, Stephanie. The second is that I'm a little bit more flexible than Jay might be on this issue, the term alliance, because I think that there are alliances. There are other arrangements that are not. So, so when I talked before about class, it's, it's understanding that when we're talking about the working class, we're not just talking about the people in particular workplaces and breaking away from that kind of economist formulation, but that there are alliances to be built with forces that are outside of the working class. And, and particularly in, in this question of the, the far right, this becomes really important, but not just in that. I just, you know, was, had the honor of being involved in organizing minor league baseball players. And, and this was really a fascinating process, in part because most people thought it couldn't be done. There were many people that treated the efforts that we undertook as sort of a hobby, but not very serious organizing. But in building it, part of what was central was building alliances outside of minor league baseball and tapping into fans, and also splitting our opponents, which is the other thing that many of us don't get, that part of the success of strategy is when you can derail your opponent, understanding their strategy, screw it up, split them up. So in that sense, alliances become very, very important, and understanding the alliances that are conducted by the other side. 
the final thing just is that none of this works if you don't organize and educate a core within the unions and within other working class organizations. It just won't. We've seen far too many examples of extraordinary, glorious militancy that ultimately goes nowhere. And even some of the most militant people, I remember this article that the late Mike Davis wrote about this uh, struggle, Peter, that you knew about, I think in Southern California, I can't remember what it was called, where one of the main people at the end joins the Tea Party. And it was like, you know, I remember Mike was just completely beside himself. And it's like, how could someone going through this end up coming to the conclusion that the Tea Party is what they should do? And, and I think that that's where the issue of internal education becomes absolutely crucial. And not just about the techniques of organizing or the techniques of representation, but really that bigger picture. Great. Thank you so much. Peter, I wanted to give a moment to ask you if you have other chapters in the book. I know you spent a lot of work editing all of these chapters and thinking about the book. Are there other insights that you found helpful that you want to lift up for our audience? Yeah, well, I would encourage everyone to read all 10. Yes. Um, <laughs> however, we've, we've cited, of course, we have Jane and Bill, and we've cited Katie Fox Odessa's work. Another chapter that's very interesting, particularly in light of current events, is Carrie Dahl's response. This is a a young organizer for the last seven years have been working for the Brotherhood of Maintenance Away Employees, which is one of the 12 railroad unions. And these are the workers that lay and repair the tracks on all the great freight systems in this country and the commuter rail. And he points out that, yes, we have a tremendous structural power, and yes, we have a union, but we haven't done the internal organizing necessary to even exercise that structural power let alone the issue of winning allies in the environmental community and the public at large. So that's an excellent chapter. And then there's a couple of chapters that stress uh, Melissa Shetler's being the most important, this whole question of how do we train and educate workers? And she argues for the Frarian approach. And, I, and I've actually seen her in action. So she practices what she preaches. And she's She's an extraordinary woman who's done a lot of organizing among building trades workers, which given that there's 3% of unionized trades are women, that's a tough road to hoe, but I've seen her do it very effectively. So a bunch of these chapters take different tacks on this question of power, strategy, and how to best organize it. Great. Thanks so much. So we're going to begin uh, wrapping towards our close as we approach an hour here, but I wanted to ask each of you um, to reflect on this really important moment we are in in history. We're really facing some really serious threats from multiple fronts, from authoritarianism, climate crisis, inequality, and a weak labor movement. But we also see a lot of activity and more interest in unions than we've seen in a very long time. A lot of young people who are very politicized and ready to learn and engage. I see in my own students a form of optimism in a way that I feel like I never really had given the era that I grew up in. So I'm curious what you're feeling uh, most excited about, if anything, right now. Are we in the beginning of a labor upsurge? And what should we really be focusing on in the near period ahead? Jane, I will start with you. There's a slide 
actually a slide in a PowerPoint I have that I only put up when I'm talking to sort of more left or progressive audiences in some ways, because that's who really under would understand it, I think. What the slide says is the conundrum, and I feel it even more strongly right now. And the conundrum to me is this. We have, in this case now, a lot of young, but not all young. We have a lot of young people and a lot of just insurgency feelings from rank and filers and this sort of, you know, surge of new organizing that's been happening. And on the one hand, it's so exciting. And on the other hand, I think if we're honest, which I like, you know, people attack me for saying this, if we're honest, they lack experience to understand how to fight the kind of bosses that they're fighting right now. And they actually lack the resources. So it's like resources and experiences. And then on the other side, you know, we have this set of like unions, including the group I just named, the unions that are still trying, who have the skill and have the resources uh, to actually know how to go up against really tough employers and frankly are risk averse sitting on the sidelines playing petty jurisdictional games and not actually really helping so there's just for me there's been this consistent conundrum enthusiasm from a set of people who lack experience i'm with bill you know i've said in every one of my books everyone can learn how to do this but it's not intuitive um, that you should wake up and spend pretty much all of your time talking to the workers who refuse to talk to you in the shop versus calling meetings and talking to the people who want to come to the meeting. Like that, it's just not intuitive to people. So there's a lot of things like that in the work. I um, mean, it just comes from experience. So, you know, we have, a, we have a surge that's very exciting and very dynamic, and I'm very concerned about it because the lack of experience is showing. And then we've got, you know, this, and, you know, all of us on this, in this discussion have been frustrated for a long time with a set of unions who won't get out of their way, won't resource the kind of energetic efforts that are taking place out there, you know, attempt to attach strings that are unfortunate, et cetera. So to me, that's the, that's the conundrum that we're sitting inside of and why, you know, I, for sake of argument, have been running free online training programs that actually cost a lot of money with a lot of German, you know, financial support, right? To try and like be a bridge between experience and knowledge and totally making it totally accessible uh, to people who have nowhere else to turn to get that kind of knowledge right now. So, you know, I mean, we're all doing our part in different ways, but that conundrum is real. And how we help the new insurgents, whether they're young or not, succeed is a crucial question. Thanks, Jane. Bill, I'll turn it to you next. I think I agree with Jane pretty much down the line on, that, on what she was just laying out. I think that we're, we're dealing with uh, a number of underlying problems. One is the lack of a coherent visionary left that can be a source of the sort of longer term vision and inspiration. In its place, we have an assortment of lefts, plural, and we also have some very well-intentioned people that are selectively picking from history to identify things that they wish to emulate for today. And so the kind of discussion we're having now about strategy and tactics is not happening. There's a lot of performance. There is a lot of dedication, but there's a lack of that. And the other piece that Jane was raising, I agree with. I always use the metaphor based on something I saw in the, the HBO series Band of Brothers about the 101st Airborne Division. 
where these replacements were coming to the front. This is World War II. And they run into a non-commissioned officer who says, you're scared, aren't you? And they said, yes. And he said, until you realize you're dead, you're already dead, you won't be able to fight the Germans. And I remember when I first heard that, feeling really shaken and not understanding what he was saying. But what he was saying is directly relevant to our movement, that we have institutions and leaders who are very much focused on self-preservation, institutional self-preservation, and they think that they can survive. I was speaking with someone about Hungary recently and about the the takeover by Orban and and these uh, kind of crypto-fascists. And, and the person was saying to me that many of the, me, particularly the non, non-governmental organizations, didn't throw down when they needed to throw down because they basically thought that they could survive, that no matter what happened, they would be able to survive. And things aren't working out that way. Um, I see that with the trade union movement when I've spoken with leaders about the need for the kind of work college idea that I was laying out. and. What I'd get back literally was, oh, well, we have the Murphy Institute, we have the Harvard Trade Union program, we have Rutgers, we have this, we have that. And I said, no, these are all great programs, but how many of those programs prepared your leaders for what to have done if the coup on January 6th had succeeded? Silence, complete and total silence. Then I asked, and how many of those programs, and I'm not making a criticism, I just asked the question, how many of those programs are preparing you for what to do when the next coup goes down, when there's more right-wing terrorism, and when there's uh, legislative disruption by the right wing. How many? And the best I was able to get was a chuckle. I mean that quite literally. And and so the problem is that these folks don't want to grapple with, we are running out of time, and that we actually don't have a whole lot to lose, because it's going to be taken from us anyway if we do nothing. So I'm saying that not to depress people because in a funny way, I'm actually quite optimistic. I'm very excited about what I see out there. And, and all of this, this stuff that James is pointing to that we've been discussing, but in the absence of leadership, in the absence of sober organization, history demonstrates what will happen and that slowly this will weaken. That's one of the reasons I don't make predictions, Stephanie. I only bet on sure things. Thanks, Bill. And uh, back to you, Peter. Well, I share the sense of urgency about the fascist threat, and I've long argued for trade union ballot brigades in battleground states. I think this is the way the labor movement establishes cred, particularly with communities of color. And we saw some of that in Pennsylvania in Arizona and Georgia and Nevada, leading role played by Unite Here in those efforts, where we won the presidential election by a few thousand votes, and a lot of that was generated by their ground game. So that urgency remains. We're going to face that challenge in 2024, if not sooner, and uh, we better get our uh, combat boots on. In terms of signs and shoots of optimism, a couple of things. This UAW situation I mentioned, where it looks like Sean Fain will become president of the UAW and will get a chance at one, taking on the big three in September when the contract expires. And if we do that successfully, having a shot 
at organizing the 1.3 million auto workers that remain in this country. The UAW represents less than 300,000 of them. Many of those workers are largely concentrated in the Southeast, but they can be organized. And here, we're going to need a little bit of wallback because we got to figure out what are the choke points in the auto industry supply chain. And as we all learned during the pandemic, some of those little computer chips, if they don't arrive, the whole auto industry shuts down. So is it auto parts that may hold out the key to organizing auto? It's going to take a commitment of leaders. It's going to take the commitment of resources, all the things that Jane and Bill talk about. But that Womackian insight into choke points is going to be crucial. Final thing I'll say is Amazon. I've spent the last five years of my life trying to help build out networks of organizers in Amazon. And right now we're in some very positive discussions where we have the Teamsters, APWU, the Postal Workers Union, and RWDSU, the union that's a division of the USCW that organized in Bessemer. We have those three unions talking to each other and networks of independent organizers like Amazonians United about starting to build some solidarity and cooperation because after all, Amazon is a million probably logistics workers and it's gonna take all hands on deck to do any serious organizing with that company. But I see positive things happening on that front. So this moment of effervescence among youth, I think can translate into some wonderful things. Even though for instance, Starbucks, we may not see that as the commanding heights of the economy. If people don't get their coffee, I suppose the whole country will come down. But, but nevertheless, one of the interesting things is that this woman, Jen Brizak, who was the organizer in Buffalo, who organized the first Starbucks store, and by the way, is a Rhodes Scholar, is now working on organizing Tesla in Buffalo. So hallelujah. I mean, this, this is the, the moment, and uh, I'm excited about those things. At the same time, the sense of urgency and concern over the political direction of our country has got to inform a lot of the things we do. Yeah, great. And we're seeing it at CUNY. In fact, we've started teaching a class, my colleague Deepak Bhargava and I teaching a class on power and strategy because there's so many organizers, not just young, younger ones, but mid-career senior organizers in labor and other sectors, community organizing, housing organizing, who are desperate and eager to talk about strategy and learn about strategy. So there's a thirst out there. And I encourage everyone to pick up a copy of the book, Labor, Power, and Strategy by John Womack Jr. and edited by Peter Olney and Glenn Perushek um, with these terrific contributions from Bill Fletcher and Jane McAlevey and many other right thinkers. Um, It's been a real pleasure to speak with all of you. Thanks so much for joining us today. Issues like those raised in today's podcast are taken up in classroom discussions at the School of Labor and Urban Studies, where our preeminent faculty and engaged and diverse student body grapple with the most pressing challenges confronting organized labor and working class communities. For more information about the school, visit slu.cuny.edu. To learn more about the podcast and listen to other episodes, visit slu.cuny.edu slash podcast. To subscribe to New Labor Forum and or sign up for our free monthly newsletter, visit newlaborforum.cuny.edu.